Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking with Alastair McCallum, a doctoral student at Monash University in Australia, who researches opposition parties in Russia and lived in Moscow during 2017 and 2018. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Alastair. Thanks for having me, Jessica. Great to be here. To start out on a bit more personal note, with that experience of having lived and worked in Russia, What was your reaction with the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think like almost everybody who works in the field, I certainly didn't see it coming and it upended a lot of my expectations and I think my kind of naive expectations that perhaps while Putin and the Russian state might be ruthless and cynical, that, that they were... Further than that, deeply neo-imperialist and ideological and prepared to lay waste to their neighbour in an unprovoked war of aggression. And it was a real shock. And it is something that's made me reevaluate almost everything I think about Russia and Russians and my time there, to be frank. Mm -hmm. From your time living in Russia, did it appear to you that there was genuine support for Putin? Well, I think Moscow, which is where I lived, I spent the vast majority of my time in Moscow, and that is a bit of a bubble. Moscow and St. Petersburg, they're wealthier, more urban, more cosmopolitan parts of Russia than anywhere else. And so you certainly hear more opposition to the regime. However, I do think there is often the sense that Putin manufactures crisis after crisis to highlight his indispensability to Russia. And I think this war is the most extreme manifestation of this so far. But I think a lot of Russians, even if they won't voice vocal support for his regime, they see it almost as a fate accompli everything that Putin does and that his government orders and that you can't really extricate the Russian state or indeed the Russian people from this administration. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the domestic context in Russia post the full-scale invasion, we did see in the early days and weeks after the 24th of February some amount of civil protest within Russia. Obviously, there were quite severe crackdowns on that. But then it seemed as though after a few weeks, that kind of died out or dissipated. How do you evaluate the domestic civil context in Russia? The riddle of Russian public opinion, it seems very difficult to get any consistent sort of polling or consistency in in attitudes of Russians towards this war. I think there is a real spectrum all the way from full-throated support to resigned acceptance to complete cynicism and belief that if we didn't start this war, we would have been the victims somehow, or that if the Russian regime is directing it, then it must be for the best on some level. I mean, one thing that's very significant is that when you try to poll Russians about, uh, and of course you can in, in no circumstance use the phrase war. But there's some really interesting findings. For example, of 30,000 respondents polled by the liberal Moscow activist slash politician Maxim Katz, and they attempted to reach by phone about 30,000 people, and I believe less than 500 
were even willing to give a response. You also see, frankly, just fairly bizarre results. Like there was a recent poll in Kommersant, which is a part of the Russian state media machine. It's nominally the, the business journal. And you just get baffling figures like that simultaneously 65% of the Russians prove of an immediate ceasefire, but 60%, so there's a lot of doubling up, also say they would support new orders to take Kiev, so a new offensive to take Kiev. So these quite bizarre and quite contradictory results, but it is also the case that when you poll Russians about their attitudes to nationalism and to the question of are there parts of other states that you believe belong to our state, the European Values Survey has been doing this for 20 years or more, you get a very strong support for what Michael Alexeyev has called truculent nationalism. So basically, a belief that Russia is not just an ordinary country with kind of clearly defined borders and with neighbours that sovereignty it needs to respect, but as one that needs to go on the offensive to reclaim purported past unjust historical losses. Mm-hmm. And have you been in touch with people in Russia who you know from your time living there and obviously without compromising anyone's safety, what's your impression of how they've been responding to the quote-unquote special military operation? I absolutely am still in contact with quite a few people. I've got friends in Ukraine as well who I'm in contact with. And again, the people I know are very much a, a sort of skewed sample. I know quite a few people who've left the countries, who've gone to Georgia, Armenia, Israel, Kyrgyzstan, the Baltics, lots of people who can't stomach their government's actions, don't recognise the country they grew up in, are leaving. But obviously, that's something that not everyone has the ability to do. And I do know friends who are still in Moscow who've have been arrested. I, I don't know anyone who's been in prison, but I do know people who face large fines. I have friends in Ukraine. For Ukrainians, it's not just having to deal with a fine or having to deal with higher prices and things like that. The people I know have friends and family members who've been killed and injured. And it's, I wouldn't want to draw any kind of false equivalence between the mostly inconvenience that a lot of Russians are suffering and the existential threat that Ukraine faces and the Ukrainians face. Mm -hmm. And thinking about the political domain in Russia as opposed to the civil arena, so first of all, more generally, what is the scope for political opposition actors and political opposition parties to function in Russia? And what does that opposition terrain look like? I'll probably just say first that when I say opposition, I'm going to be talking about in the very broadest sense. Not that all you know, opposition and semi-opposition in Russia is the same, but as, as you guessed, Alexander Matovsky said a few weeks ago, so Russia is an electoral autocracy. Since the end of the Cold War, especially, most dictatorships maintain at least a pantomime of democracy and of multi-party democracy as well. So even when they eliminate the substance of democracy, the structures still largely stay in place. 
I think it's fair to say Russia was never really a developed democracy, but it went from being a flawed democracy, I would say, in the 1990s to what is a very repressive autocracy under Putin today. But still, there is what is topical in the Russian context, managed democracy. So it's especially associated with Putin's former um, advisor, though he's, he's less visible now, Vladislav Surkov. So the idea that there can be a measure of democracy, but everything is geared for the the ruling party to win. Mm-hmm. Has that now shifted since the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine? Has there been less scope for political actors to voice opposition? I think the arrest and imprisonment of, of Alexei Navalny was perhaps the real sort of paradigm shift in, in signalling that Russia is no longer keeping power with a sort of mixture of carrots and sticks. It's very much this oppressive autocracy, but nonetheless... Things like local elections continue to be held. They haven't. They've talked about suspending them, but they. It, it doesn't look like they will. And you still do see occasionally things like local assemblies being used as a forum for dissent against the war. You might have seen, for example, the local Moscow councillor Alexei Gorinov, who was sentenced to seven years in prison for criticising that the special military operation. And so this is just a local councillor, basically, who used what is a very modest forum, virtually non-existent in terms of actual power, to nonetheless make a public statement where there are very few other options. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering whether, in your experience, people within Russia think that they are living in some kind of democratic regime, having those elections at local council level and state level elections as well. Was the thinking kind of, well, we we do live in a democracy, even if it's kind of a restricted democracy, or do people view that with cynicism? This is a complete authoritarian regime where we're just given this kind of, you know, illusion of of choice. That's a really good question. I, I think that Russian state media and state propaganda is is quite effective at even when it can't totally build legitimacy for its own system. It's very good at creating the idea that European and American elections are just as bad and that purported liberal democracies in the West are in themselves completely flawed and unfree and manipulated. So I think that mentality influences a lot of of people in Russia. And I, I think there is also the idea that the will of the majority can trump the civil rights of a few. The difficulty is, of course, who gets to determine who represents that, you know, true majority and that consensus. And especially as this war gets longer and more expensive in Russia, both in terms of of lives lost and economic cost, how long they can keep that kind of consensus together. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess Putin won 77% of the votes in the presidential election that took place in March 2018. So obviously a lot of people were voting for him, even if they felt maybe under duress. I think a lot of people believed that even though the the Russian government might be full of flaws, they often believed in the good czar betrayed by his dishonest underlings. Also a sort of simple belief that there's no other alternative, that there would be chaos if there was was anybody else, and also the lack of genuine alternatives. So in Russia, 
the most prominent and long-standing opposition party is the Communist Party, but they have a, a largely kind of toothless leadership and not no particular interest in winning back power. And then you have, I should say, neither Liberal nor Democratic, but you have the Nationalist Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, and then you have Ersatz Social Democratic Party called Adjust Russia. And those are the main kind of systemic ones. The other political party that's been in the Russian political system since the early 90s is the Liberal Party, pro-Western Liberal Party called Yabloko, and that means apple in Russian. And they continue to exist, but are very marginal outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg. I think this is a little bit unfair, but I remember Mark Galliotti mm-hmm. described them as, at this stage, a bug not worth stepping on to explain their continued existence. Finally, you mentioned at the beginning that the full-scale invasion has made you sort of rethink some things. In what way have you sort of reevaluated what you're doing or your research agenda? As someone who lived nearly two years there, I had wanted to believe that Russia wasn't as uh, militarist and expansionist as it is often seen in the the West, and I had wanted to believe that maybe there would be more widespread opposition to just an appalling, you know, humanitarian level and in, a, in terms of international law, just unspeakably awful invasion like this. So I suppose it has made me realise the power that authoritarian governments can have on people to manufacture not just enthusiastic support, but also when needed to render parts of the population totally passive. So I think one reason that Putinism is different from, say, like a classical fascist regime, and I think there's lots of analogies, is that while a, a fascist regime will want to mobilise the entirety of the population against like external and internal enemies, Putinism looks to mobilise some parts of society and demobilise other parts. But what I think is true is that it's getting harder and harder for the, the parts of, of Russian society that have been relatively untouched by the war so far to stay so. And especially as they're getting more desperate for soldiers and trying to you know, squeeze new volunteer units out of cities like uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, as most estimates of Russian combat deaths I've seen now are north of 40,000. Passivity is not going to be an option forever for many people. It's made me realise, I think, that authoritarian regimes can permit some degree of competition as long as they keep it very firmly constrained. So there's upcoming regional elections in a few different Russian regions. In the first weeks of September, there's municipal elections in, in Moscow. And it's quite strange and surreal that you'll get parties which will have on the, on the cover of their flyers will say, we are for peace. But they can't say for peace from what? They can't say that part. It's still the case, though, that people can mobilise and participate and build a sense of how a democracy works and how to run a democratic campaign, even if they know that they have no chance of actual winning. And we've seen, you know, the Duma elections last year were a case of just how egregious the, the falsifications has been getting. But what I think these air quotes electors do is they can build a sense of democratic expectations. So they can teach 
future opposition leaders how to run a campaign, how to spot falsification and numerous other things. So still, I would say not completely meaningless, but it does kind of illustrate the paradox of a system where no significant opposition is allowed, but these structures of political participation still exist and still don't look like they'll be abolished anytime soon. Mm-hmm. It's not clear to me whether that's sort of even more insidious because, you know, it might contribute to that pacification of certain constituencies in the population that you were talking about who may feel, well, we do have some kind of voice or some kind of outlet for opposition, but it's not really substantive. But the question is if there's a sudden opening in the system, if there's a palace coup or if something happens and the whole system gets upended, whether people who have been participants in this kind of phony democracy can then make that transition, you know, actually changing the political system. I think that can't completely be ruled out. Mm -hmm. Although it sort of seems if any kind of opposition to what's going on is really going to gather steam, it's possibly more to the right of Putin, where it might more be people who are not disagreeing with the fact that Russia has started full-scale invasion in Ukraine, but are upset that it's gone so badly. I mean, this is beyond the sort of scope of what I've been covering, but I I still think that the challenge to Putin either will come from sort of the right or it might be a, basically a palace coup by not ideological opponents of the invasion, but just some of the, the leaders of his administration worried about the economic impact who might be prepared to end it if it means saving the Russian economy. But yes, I think a popular uprising is not really on the cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Alistair. I appreciate you being with me on the podcast today. Much enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.